Hey everybody, this is Sarah, and I have a quick note about today's show before we get started. We had some major problems with the audio that were entirely my fault. Laurel and I discussed re-recording, but we quite honestly don't have the bandwidth or the time, so apologies. The sound is a bit messed up. It will be better on future episodes, and if you would like to complain about it, feel free to give us a five-star review and complain about the sound quality. (laughs) Thanks, you guys. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Movement Logic Podcast with yoga teacher and strength coach Laurel Beversdorf and physical therapist Dr. Sarah Court. With over 30 years combined experience in the yoga, movement, and physical therapy worlds, we believe in strong opinions loosely held, which means we're not hyping outdated movement concepts. Instead, we're here with up-to-date and cutting-edge tools, evidence, and ideas to help you as a mover and a teacher. Welcome to Season 4 of the Movement Logic Podcast. I'm Dr. Sarah Court, and I'm here with my co-host, Laurel Beversdorf. Laurel, it's Season 4. This is our (laughs) 60th episode. Can you believe it? Uh, no. (laughs) I mean, I feel like we've been doing this forever, so in that sense, yes. But the idea that we've actually, I can't believe we've thought of 60 things to talk about. Like, I, <laughs> you know well, I, mean? I can believe that actually i because i can i can think of sixty thousand more things in fact oh. it, it 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 haunts me the number of things that i want to be talking about uh like it's constant in my brain but um i can't believe that we have been able to given how busy both of us are like commit to this process of creating yeah. podcast episodes because it is as we've discussed, it's a lot of work, but I think what keeps me going at least is just how much I enjoy talking to you Aww. and collaborating with you Aww. and how much I get to learn about the topics we talk about through our conversations. So that's what's in it for me. Me too. I feel exactly the same way. So speaking of being busy people, Laura, we have decided now, starting with season four, we are for season four going to be doing episodes every other week instead of every week because we are walking our talk and prioritizing a little more self-care, which if you know either of us is not especially easy for us to do. We're going to try it and see if we implode from just being so relaxed. Um, but I'm not, I'm, it, seriously though, I'm not trying to glamorize the hustle. I'm just trying to do a better job of not overworking, which yeah. I am prone to doing and I think you are as well. Yeah, yeah. I think that what I've enjoyed so far about this once every two weeks plan is being able to spend actually a little bit more time um, researching and reading. And and so that's felt really like less urgent and just more enjoyable. Nice. Before we get into it, I wanted to talk with you a little bit about our bone density program, Lift for Longevity, and Uh, how cool it is. We're about halfway through the the six month program, it's been phenomenal, and what's been so super exciting for me is seeing all of these women, ninety women, getting stronger and stronger month over month. And we actually just had a special class. It's known as a build up class. The way we did it was really as a one rep max test. So we basically we did a test 
uh, how strong the, the students are in either the deadlift or the squat, the back squat. And they got to choose which exercise they wanted to build up to a uh, one repetition, right? And we, we had them start off with 10 reps, easy, six reps, then four, then three, then two, or four, two, one, one, one. So they had three attempts at one repetition. And there were so many light bulbs that went off yeah. in the session where folks were like, OMG, I am now squatting 30 more pounds as my one rep max yeah. than I initially thought based on the predictions you would use with a 1RM chart or a 1RM calculator. And so I think it was just really illuminating to them that actually they could go heavier on those sets of six, they could go heavier on those sets of eight, they could go heavier on those sets of five, right? And they're, at this point in the program, they're already lifting heavy. They're lifting in that, you know, 90, 85 to 95% range for some lifts, for some of the compound lifts. And I think it was just a really great way to isolate maximum force, right? And go, listen, it's only one rep. Could you add five more pounds? And many of them were like, yeah, 15 or 20 more pounds, in fact. <laughs> yeah. We were teaching it live. And the most fun person to watch was one of our students who, like, we were sort of, you know, everybody was kind of like got to their limit and was kind of winding down. And this person, she just kept adding more and more and more. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, are you okay? Let's go. I sort of check in on what's going on. She's like, yeah, I keep, it keeps being too easy. I was like, all right, great. Go for it. Yeah. Yeah, I think I know who you're talking about. She yeah. ended up with 125 pounds, yeah. one rep max on her squat. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Like, you know, some folks are just naturals at, at stuff. And yeah. I think you might have a natural uh, ability to squat. Yeah. And she and she does. I mean, yeah. you know, she's been in all the live classes, I think, for my live sessions. And yeah, she has made enormous pro pro progress, yeah. but so so is everyone. I mean, it's so just, many, it's, yeah. it's fun, isn't it's it? It's super sad. Oh, it's so satisfying. And I was saying during that class as well, but like, I get so, I get like that level of happy where you start to want to cry a little bit because it's yeah. so satisfying because all I worked so hard on this program, a yeah. little bit with sort of fingers crossed because we didn't know if anybody was going to be, we were pretty sure some people would be interested in it. But uh, we had no idea so many people would be interested in it. Mm -hmm. And it is, you know, there's almost sort of a, a, a parental pride feeling in a way where you're seeing these women who are like, I'm putting my trust in you that you are going to safely help me get much stronger and watching them do it with just, you know, honestly, kind of minimal guidance from us, you know, maybe a bit more in the yeah. beginning, but now they're really just taking control of it and just flying. And it's so satisfying. Yeah. We're in the fine tuning stage right now in terms of technique for for most people in the program and now what we're working on is we're working on what it means to lift heavy like what yeah. that feels like and then getting used to that and then being able to accurately predict that exertion level that we're trying to target and the load selection that would get us there and and this all just takes time which is why it's a 6 month course and i think that it definitely couldn't have been shorter no. And it's probably going to want to be longer, but we have plans for this cohort <laughs> for next cycle. Right. And, and, you know, we just ultimately we want to create uh, basically just a, a group of badass women yeah. who pick up heavy shit together. Like that's, that's what I'm trying to do here. A hundred percent.
So if you are listening to this and you're like, oh, that sounds cool. I didn't really know much about it or I missed the last one. Uh, we are we have a wait list that you can sign up for for the 2024 cohort. It will start in October. And so if you get on the wait list, you will not only hear about all of this ahead of time, but that is the only, I repeat, only place to get the discounted price for 2024. So there will be a link in the show notes. There are links all over the place. If you follow us on Instagram, you'll see the links in the Movement Logic page on Laurel and my personal pages. So you cannot get away from this link, but it will take you to the sign up page. Even if you are already on our mailing list, sign up for this because it's going to segment you into our wait list. And again, that's the only place where you're going to get the discount for next year. So if you're into it and you want to, you're a, you're a planner, I'm a planner. If you're a planner like me and you're like, I know it's only, I was about to say March. I know it's only January. <laughs> it's not March, but I want to you know, whether I do it or not, I want to access at least the discount for this. So get yourselves on our list. And again, the link is in the show notes. Okay. Finally, 75 minutes later, we're going to get into the topic. (laughs) (laughs) So today's episode is part one of a three-part series that we are calling Dismantling Long and Lean. We have had many, many requests to talk about the phrase long and lean and its different iterations and sources, whether it's from the yoga world, the Pilates world, social media, diet culture, so on and so on. So each episode of this three-part series will focus on a different aspect of the scourge. Is that how you say that word? Scourge? Scourge. Scourge? I think it's scourge. Scourge? Yeah. It's one of those words where, as I keep saying it, it starts to look so weird. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, the scourge of long and lean. So in this first episode, our focus is on the historical and sociological development of this aesthetic nadir, this epitome of the ideal, the quote-unquote perfect female form, aka long and lean. And I put my hand up to do this one because, as some of you may know, I was an art history major in college, and so I really enjoy doing the, you know, make a cup of tea, sit down, let me tell you a story kind of episodes. And also, as an art history major, I observed up and close how the ideal female form has morphed throughout the centuries through various art forms, and I want to tell you about it. Also, you have a modeling background as well, which I which I also find deeply relevant to this topic. Yes, and I I kind of didn't put a lot of like notes in about that, but we can for sure talk about it. I mean, anyway, yes. So the through line. The through line of all these variations on the ideal female form is, of course, the male gaze. Whether it's overtly placed on women or internalized by women and repurposed as a requirement for femininity, which is then, of course, also suggesting that women's main role is to live up to a male standard, which for most of history has been the headliner, with exceptions in certain civilizations and certain eras. This episode could literally be a college course if we wanted to make it one, but we don't have the time or the bandwidth, so it's going to be a Cliff's Notes version. We're also and, not academics. <laughs> I mean, I well, I think we are academic. That's true. We're not in academia. That's um, true. <laughs> I'm not tenured anywhere, but I'm tenacious. <laughs> you are in my book. Oh, thanks. <laughs> so I don't want to spend a lot of time during this episode repeating the concept that this ideal takes place under the male gaze. So. Let's just start from a place of assuming that that's that's what we're talking about. 
And then the other thing I wanted to say up front is that this is the the European slash North American Western ideal through history. And it would also be multiple college courses to cover this ideal in every other artistic and cultural history. So the history of art we will be going into here is European and North American because that is what I know the most about and it is the basis for a lot of the Western aesthetic we see today. So we're going to look at the idealized image of women through art with a historical gaze. And then as we enter the second half of the, the 1900s, we're going to start to unpick the narrative around becoming long and lean, where it might have come from, how diet and exercise became front and center to attempt to attain or maintain this impossible ideal, and where we are today with social media, Photoshop, and AI in the mix. So, Laurel and listeners, let's start with our current day understanding of what long and lean looks like. Hmm. So, Laurel, if I say... Imagine a woman who is long and lean. What image does that conjure up for you? What does she look like in your mind's eye? Yeah, if I'm honest and I just go free association, like mm-hmm. first thing that comes to mind is someone who is a supermodel, someone who is maybe a ballet dancer, someone who is not what I would describe as muscular in the athletic sense, but rather actually has this delicate almost fragile, beautiful by kind of really sort of um, mainstream standards, Disney princess. I think Mm. Disney princess. I think of someone who is, um, that doesn't really look like me, but might look a little bit like you, Sarah. But (laughs) but here's where it really got interesting because, you know, you gave me this question ahead of time and I did free associate with it. And I was like, but I don't think of Sarah's long and lean hmm. because there's something very, when I, f- when I imagine you, what I imagine is actually your personality. It's like Aww. your personality coming through your body. So there's like a cleverness, there's a no nonsense aspect, it, there's a silliness, there's a, there's a little bit of whimsy. Okay. So I would, I would consider whimsy to be kind of in the line of long and lean. Like if someone's long and lean, they're whimsical, they're light, Mm. like a leaf falling Mm. from the tree. Right. But you bring so much more nuance and richness. And it's coming from the fact that I know who you are as a person. right? Right. And so that's when I started to think, you know, when we think of women, a lot of times, just a woman. And if we go, a long and lean woman, we don't consider the personality at all, right? It's entirely about this way that this person looks like an unnamed Jane Doe of a template woman who is generic, like a blueprint of a woman that, you know, is sort of how we're supposed to want to look, right? So that's that's a really interesting point that it's like, that it's so uh, surface level and it's, and, um, it's superficial. It's not who is this person. It's just what is the, like Disney princess is great. They're cartoons, literally, right? They're drawn. Now, but here's my question. What race is this person? In oh yeah, mind? white. Like yeah. free association, like immediately. I thought of like Christy Brinkley. Mm-hmm. I thought of like, cause those were the supermodels of my time. Cindy Crawford. Uh-huh. Um, I thought of like Heidi Klum, uh-huh. right? And, and like ballet dancers that I have seen on TV, which were, are overwhelmingly white. Yes. So white. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. 
So I, I would imagine that a lot of our listeners have, you know, the same as yours, Laurel, or very similar image in mind when we think about long and lean. However, long and lean was not always the aesthetic goal for women. In fact, during some time periods, it was the absolute opposite of ideal because of what it signified about your social standing in the world. There was a time when you absolutely did not want to be long and lean, but it was a pretty long time ago in Western society. There are some countries and cultures that continue to this day to idealize a larger form for a woman, but again, that's not going to be the focus of this episode. <laughs> so in the interest of this episode ending in under two hours, I'm going to start our art history survey course during the medieval period, mostly because I want to start with something funny. Also, because during the medieval period there, nobody knew how to draw anything at all. It was hysterical. So there are a lot of hilarious renditions of male and female bodies. Uh, you know, nobody knew how to draw with scale or perspective or three dimensions. Every animal got a human face. Uh, a person and a castle might be the same size. It was quite honestly hilarious. Like truly, if you want a good laugh, go and look at some early medieval renditions of dogs. Now, most of the time, most of the art of the time was religious, as it was the monks who would painstakingly write out copies of the Bible by hand and also illustrate them. And this leads me to one of my favorite websites of all time, which very sadly stopped creating new content six years ago, but still exists. And if you've never seen it, I am jealous that you get to experience it for the first time. And of course, I will link it in the show notes. That website is called The Toast. And it was started by Daniel Mallory Ortberg and Nicole Cliff. And it is an excellent place to spend an afternoon laughing at how funny they both are. Uh, and in particular, the art history aspects that they, that they make fun of are hilarious. So they did a bunch of series. One of the series they did was called Two Monks, in which they would write imaginary text conversations between two medieval monks about how to draw things like horses and women and hands, and then show actual pieces of art from the time that are awful attempts at drawing these things. And so I sent Laurel one of my absolute favorites. Laurel, would you please reenact the imaginary text conversation and then attempt to describe to our audience the piece of art in question? Sure. Okay. So Sarah just gave me this like an hour or two ago. Monk one, how much is a woman? Monk two, like an eighth. Monk one, ah, T-Y-T-Y, which I think means thank you. Thank you. Yes. Uh, all right. So in this picture, I see a man in some colorful garb, like a blue robe and an orange scarf-like thing with a round. It almost looks like a like a, a rescue inner tube that you find in pools, like around his head. And he looks a little bit like Jesus. And he's yeah, I'm going to help you out. That's Jesus. Oh, it's Jesus. Okay. This is Jesus. <laughs> so Jesus is holding on to... The arm of a woman, but the arm looks like an infant arm attached to just the upper, like just below her collarbones. Everything below her collarbones is completely missing from the picture. She's like a floating head with a infant arm. Um, and she looks sad and downtrodden and her eyes are downcast. And she, maybe that's the Virgin Mary. I don't know. Um and then and then then there's this other dude who is like reclining back on a rock and it looks like he's literally I'm sorry this is kind of crude but it looks like he has his thumb in his crotch and his <laughs> hand is wrapped around his upper thigh his his rib cage you can see his ribs are prominent it almost looks like they drew the top part of his body stuck it on the bottom part of his body 
um, that looks like two different pictures put together. Anyway, he's leaning into his hand. He looks sad. Yeah. And I don't have an art history degree, so I have no idea what to make of this. It it seems absurd and bizarre to me, but I'm sure do you do you see something deeper in this picture? Well, so I don't see something deeper, but what I believe I don't know, but what I think this is supposed to represent is well, it's weird because usually it's Jesus who's got his two fingers up like that, but I think this might be supposed to be God making woman from from Adam's rib. Right. That's why there's so little of her. There's like just an arm and a head. But it's not, it's so weird. And the other thing that's crazy that I noticed uh, is that his belly button is an eye. I don't know what is going on. His hand almost looks like it's melded with his other thigh. It's it's a very, it's a picture Shit that you, drawing. you, yeah, like you, you look at it and you, you want to look away, but you can't look away. <laughs> totally. So if this piques your interest, listeners, uh, you really sure i mean i go back honestly it's one of the sites that i keep as a like when i'm in a bad mood i go back and look at it because there's so much hilarious stuff in there um okay so our point being it took a while before artists really started to understand how to draw and paint realistically and that brings us to the renaissance and an era of western art that a lot of people are pretty familiar with da vinci and his peers when I, was, when I was writing these notes i had a total brain fart on any renaissance artist except for da vinci and then my brain was like just think of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And I could only remember Leonardo, which doesn't help because that's Leonardo da Vinci. Laurel, can you name all four Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? Um, I used to be able to. I loved that cartoon. I know Donatello is one of them. There you go. Donatello. I think that's all I got. Leonardo. I feel like there's one that starts with a B. There's two more, isn't yeah. there? Uh, there are definitely four, some yeah, people four. yelling at us right now over the airwaves being like, I know. Maybe you can look that up in the background while I keep going. Leonardo okay. Donatello. So this was in the Renaissance period, an explosion of like large muscular men and soft rounded women as an ideal. There was no long and lean here for women in no small part because being skinny suggested that you were poor and could not afford rich food. And completely related note, it was also important that you were pale, pale, pale and having any kind of color to your skin suggested that you spent time outside working like a poor. But hang on. Did you find all the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? Yeah. So we forgot Raphael Ugh. and Michelangelo. Michelangelo! And there's also Splinter, but isn't he a bad guy? He's the bad guy. He's not yeah. a turtle. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Right. Okay, so I always think it's interesting. When we, if we flash forward to like the 1980s and the idealized, tanned, lean woman like Christy Brinkley running on a beach in a bathing suit, which was decidedly not the look for wealthy Renaissance ladies who are the ones having their portraits done, and thus the artistic visual ideal. They were like the influencers of the time, if you will. And Petrarch, who was a poet of the time, he was obsessed with this one woman in particular named Laura, and uh, he wrote tons and tons and tons of poems about her. And because his poetry was so widely read, it soon became a Renaissance ideal to look like Laura. And so I got this description from the Metropolitan Museum website, which is, and I quote, the ideal woman had blonde hair, which was often dyed, a high forehead, often created by plucking hairs from the hairline with tweezers, pale skin, and a long neck. I think they also used to paint their skin white. Oh, yes. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People in the Renaissance believed that a woman's physical characteristics were a reflection of her beauty on the inside. So if you were beautiful on the outside, that meant you were beautiful on the inside. 
Mm. Laurel, do you have any thoughts on this contrast between these two ideals and, and in particular what each societal impact had on women's health? Like we may have thought we were prioritizing fitness and exercise in the 80s, but I think in the reality, we cared less about being healthy and more about looking healthy using yeah. whatever means available, diets, drugs, surgery, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty much the case throughout history that, you know, pre-evidence-based modern medicine and now post-evidence-based modern medicine, that if we want to better understand how women are handled by society, we should really look closely at the discrepancy, the difference between everything we're told to do to appear healthy, which is really just another way of saying appearing uh, fashionable or as a member of mainstream, uh, higher echelon, you know, wealthy society, right? Everything we're told to appear healthy, quote unquote, and then what it is that is actually required to be healthy from an evidence-based right standpoint. And there is almost like it's almost like complete opposites because what's required to look like we're somebody in this world is actually quite a bit of money. And what's required to be healthy is actually a social safety net. Mm-hmm. And these two ideas are at odds with each other because the dollar is king, right? In the United States, we're a capitalist society. We're a deeply hierarchical capitalist society. There are winners and there are losers here. And to be healthy, right? To actually be healthy, what we need is universal health care. We need access to nutrient-dense food. We need access to mental health care. We need access to reproductive health care. We need you know, enough time in our day and to feel safe enough to exercise moderately, right? And, you know, women, especially, I think, are kind of scapegoated, right? Where it's like, you can never fucking win. You are never enough, never enough. And that is a feature. It's not a bug, right? It's a feature. So, it functions to basically feed the capitalist machine that we all operate and breathe inside of. So I think that that that, that I could say a lot about this, and I know we both could say a lot about it. But no, you know what happened in the eighties with the it was really the early nineties with the obesity epidemic, and then you know fat phobia has been around for a long, long, long time, but it kind of collided with the medical system in the the early 90s, that we are still deeply confused as a society. I'm not saying that medicine is confused about what it means to be healthy. I I think that medicine often does a shit job, um, but they're operating within uh, a lot of, with with a lot of constraints, right? That that medicine operates within this capitalist society, but I I think we're doing a pretty shit job of helping people actually be healthy. Yeah. Because it's not it's not as simple as as saying change your individual behaviors, right? That that's what's tricky about it. And and when we focus a lot on how people look, um, we bring it down to the individual and 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 what we perceive as being under their control. And and really, it's just it's bullshit. It's bullshit. Like people can look uh, many different ways and be healthy, and they can look many different ways and be unhealthy. Like these two things need to be divorced in our mind, basically. Yes. 
A hundred percent. Snaps, snaps, snaps. <laughs> so many snaps. Snaps. Okay. I'm going to pull us back to the Renaissance. Uh, we are coming back to the 90s and the 80s. Don't worry. But uh, just to continue our timeline. So following the Renaissance, as we scroll through the centuries, uh, women continue to be clothed in corsets. And uh, it's, there are these things called waist trainers now that we're going to get into that drive me nuts. So corsets, layers and layers of dresses with hoops and bumps and all kinds of things that basically kept you from physically moving around much. And you certainly didn't get any pockets because <laughs> women with pockets were dangerous. It meant they could hold things and pass them to each other. So be subservient, be quiet, be housebound, make children, raise your children. Don't be assertive. Don't be argumentative. Those were the qualities that you were supposed to embody in your physical appearance and in your internal self. And we could turn this into a women's studies class as well. We could start talking about the suffragette movement, but we do have other fish to fry here. So moving right along, we are going to fast forward to the 1900s. And we start to spend a little bit more time in this century. So we start to see some trends in body types that, that are happening now, like a decade at a time, like the the speed of the trend of the body shape starts to speed up. And I don't think that's unrelated to things like mass production of like newspaper material. Like it was easier to sort of get information to the masses faster. So trends became more kind of, uh, you know, decade by decade. So there was something in the 1910s called the Gibson girl named for, of course, man, illustrator, Charles Gibson. Uh, she had a cinched in corseted waist and then large breasts and curvy hips. She was kind of like the hourglass figure, right? But quickly followed by the flapper of the 20s and the 30s, which is just straight up and down. No boobs, no hips, just very boyish figure. In the 1940s brought, and I didn't know this, I thought this was fascinating. You know those really pointy cone bra, like the torpedo, they were called torpedo bras or bullet bras? I didn't realize, but this is, of course, influenced by World War II. <laughs> it's like so fascinating. Hmm. Um, and then the 50s became the time of Marilyn Monroe and curves for days, but also sort of a smallish waist. But Marilyn Monroe was not tiny, right? She wasn't long and lean. So as far as exercise goes, sort of starting in the 50s, exercise is being promoted to women. And through, uh, we've talked about this before, the Jack LaLanne show, it ran from 1953 to 1985. Hmm. And uh, we talked about it in the episode, Pink Dumbbells and the Shrinking Female Body. I just wanted to highlight this super gross quote from the show in which Jack LaVanne referred to a woman's stomach as their front porch, their hips as their side porch, and their bottom as their back porch. Mm. Well, how do you think this type of language <laughs> impacts how a woman thinks about her body? That's a particularly uh, hard one to hear. Yeah, you're a house. We're going to put a baby in your oven. And yeah. that is, right? Maybe I mean, in the oven. Yeah. yeah. So then if we move on to the 60s, that's when Twiggy, the model Twiggy was around. So Twiggy skinny, right? And it, it coincided with Weight Watchers, which arrived on the scene in the early 60s. And I don't think I need to go into how successful that has been. I looked it up. The current annual, annual revenue of Weight Watchers is about a billion dollars. They make a billion dollars a year. So then as we get into the 70s, then we're starting to get a little bit more of this athletic look, right? The, the 70s was known for this boom in jogging for exercise or, and I just had to put this in because it makes me laugh, in uh, Ron Burgundy from Anchorman, 
he, he says, we're just, we're doing this new thing called jogging. Apparently you just run for an extended period of time. But it was the 80s that was really known for just an explosion in fitness culture with gyms offering aerobic classes for women, weightlifting for men. We're going to pause and spend a little time sort of here and then going forwards. So if you came online in the 80s, as I did, as you did, Laurel, but I'm a little bit older than you, um, as I believe many of our listeners did, if the phrase, I carried a watermelon, means anything to you, then the shape that you were told to aspire to was the OG long and lean, if you will. The 80s was the era that spawned the supermodels. And they're so famous that we knew them by first names only. Cindy, Christy, Linda, Naomi. They were the glamazons. And these women epitomized glamour. And alongside this came things like, you know, aerobics, jazzercise, other workouts for women that would, and I, I hate this word so much, tone your body. To this day, classes aimed at women are called things like sculpt and define, right? And it's, it's like this idea that underneath the, the current lump of clay that you are, there's a perfect body and you just need to go to enough aerobics classes and sculpt away that gross excess to reveal the perfect body underneath. Also, you would only ever use the tiny pink dumbbells, two or three pounds at the most, because that's how you tone and then my notes just went fucking hell gah, because I just, I got annoyed at that point. <laughs> just stop writing. Um, pink, pink it and shrink it. Pink it and shrink it. That's our friend, Mickey Mob Levy. Yeah. Um, what other words are there out there, Laurel, that are, that are aimed at women or in classes for women? Are there any that you, that you hate in particular? I really hate tone. You, you got a lot of them. Um, chisel. Mm. Uh, shape and tighten. Uh-huh. Uh, sometimes more aggressive terms like blast and shred, uh, yeah. which just make me um, go ouch. Like, yeah. no, please don't blast my body. Right, seriously. But like burn or firm, right? Firm. All those jiggly things. Too many jiggly things. They need to be firm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Lift. We're going to lift your bum. Yeah. <sighs> and lengthen, right, for long and lean, right? So mm. there's a... Ugh. And then we also started to, around this time and into the 90s, started to get into this very nitpicky attitude about women's bodies, this idea that you had problem areas, right? Yeah. And that you could target them like your core or your butt. According to the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, Americans spent an estimated $30 billion in 1992 on all types of, that's 1992 money which is, I don't know what the translation is to now money, but it's more, on all types of diet programs and products, diet foods, drinks. I mean, it's fucking exhausting. And I have absolutely participated. I mean, Laurel, did you ever feel pressure to diet or exercise just for reasons of appearance? Oh my God, yeah. I mean, I went from exercising really for athletic purposes, just not at all concerned about what I look like because I did ball sports. I wasn't a gymnast or I wasn't a dancer or anything like that to enrolling in a Bachelor of Fine Arts program as an actor with, you know, aspirations to work in a large city, perhaps on camera, perhaps on stage. I didn't know. And but, you know, even before that, like I got messages from all over the places we all did. I mean, come on, it was the 90s. It was the 80s. It was the 90s. It was all about diet culture. Right. And it, like from my mom as well. Of course, she was also trying to lose weight. And 
I definitely um, had some problem areas, according to me, but it was very confusing to me because I, so one of my problem areas was my butt. Mm -hmm. I was like, not okay with my butt. But then I went and then I went to like college and, and, you know, left the house and went to New York City and like, I got a lot of attention from men about my butt. So mm. I was like, I don't know how to feel about this, right? So mm. I'm objectified for my my butt, right? Which is, you know, of course, like we could talk about this whole idea of like what you mentioned about oh her front porch and her back porch and a bun in the oven. Like women are objectified so that they can be commodified, right? They're objectified so that they can be made, you know, like a possession dehumanized in a way, right? And, and again, that's that's a feature, not a bug of the society that we live in, the deeply hierarchical society where women are not in positions of power typically. Uh, although what I will say is that there is a lot of internalized misogyny. I don't know if you've noticed this, Sarah. Right. And I, I certainly have internalized misogyny. I think that most women do because we op we are of this place. Right. We breathe the air here. And so I would say, like, yes, having problem areas as a woman is a form of I don't want to call it internalized misogyny necessarily, but like the messaging has worked. Right. Like you have started to think of your body as an object, right? As something to be shaped like clay for the pleasure of someone else's eyes, right? And unfortunately, yeah, that's what we're dealing with. And that's why we're doing these episodes, right? Is to kind of peel back the curtain and make some of this less implicit and more explicit in our minds. You know, it, it's like the matrix, right? We're trying totally. to, we're trying to like recognize what is actually being communicated yes. underneath the flippant words that we hear every single day. Yes. A hundred percent. I have a really clear memory of buying laxatives because I remember reading in a magazine or somewhere that like it was like if you if you overate just buy some laxatives and like flush it all out of your body or something it was like an alternative to being bulimic right or something like that mm -hmm. um but i don't remember i think i chickened out of of using it or maybe i tried it and it didn't do anything <laughs> like i don't know what i thought it was going to do but i remember like that was like ooh for to to make me skinnier you know from my late teens into my early 20s i did have a full-on eating disorder i was anorexic and uh, I was modeling for a lot of that time. And so the feedback loop that I was in was like, you look great, keep going. Mm. You know, you're yeah, yeah. work, you look great, keep going. Oh, I'm like, oh, right. well, if, if I'm doing a good job not eating, watch me not, even, not eat even more. Watch uh -huh. this amount of not eating. But luckily for me, I got out of that Industry. And you, you, you get the you get this type of feedback from people that you know love you very much, like that are very close to you, parents, yeah. siblings, family members. Like you know, I've 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 definitely had disordered eating. I probably don't classify as having a, an eating disorder, but there's been many times in my life where I would lose five, ten pounds for whatever reason. Maybe sometimes on accident, sometimes on purpose, and people would be like, "Wow, you look." great. And some people go further and be like, you've lost weight. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? And, and mm -hmm. like, it's so, it's like the attention on my butt. It's so confusing. You're like, uh, <laughs> thank you because there's this deep anxiety underneath that, mm -hmm. right? There's this, there's this, this feeling of just kind of being a thing that people look at underneath that. And this wanting of acceptance for 
something maybe deeper than that, but hey, I'll take it. If, if, if you think I look good, that's, that's, that's good too, right? It's very, um, it's very sad. It's very yeah. sad. And it, it, and it, it kind of like reminds me again of this question about like, who do you think of when you think of someone that's long and lean? And like, I could think of Sarah, but I don't because I know Sarah. I know who she is as a person. I, I, I'm unable to dehumanize her to that extent and be like, Sarah is this object that is long and lean, right? It's like, no, Sarah's Sarah. And, um, and, I, and I think that ultimately that's what every person wants, right? Is to be seen as a person, as right. a whole person. And, and I think men and women face this challenge, but women especially are often not seen that way. Yeah. Yeah. Now, when we were talking about, you know, it, it, you're getting positive feedback or you're getting feedback from people around you who love you. I just remember, you know, I, my agency, my, my modeling agents were like, you look great. And I was like, this means I'm succeeding. I am, I'm getting positive reinforcement from them. I, you know, I, a lot of it was about you know, you're not, you don't have a lot of autonomy as a model. You're basically a, you know, for want of a better, you're, you're a clothes hanger with a heartbeat, you know? So, I mean, I, there's so many conversations that happened in front of me that were just, you know, horrendous. And, and I was also, you know, pre 25, my brain was not fully formed, but I remember, I remember one time standing next to another model and the, the, the client was looking at us and they were like, which one has the better legs? And then they picked the other girl because she had the better legs. Like what's so funny to me is you like considering me long and lean because in my head, I'm like, no, I'm not mm. because this, it's so internalized from all of that stuff. I'm like, well, no, I look normal. Long and lean is skinny. Yeah. But anyway, that's all, that's like self image and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, and even after the eating disorder part was over, it took a long time for me to stop think about control, thinking about controlling my food all the time. Like I was definitely still, very concerned with what I was eating. It didn't, I didn't just go like, you know, Ooh, I'm fine now. And I think that's the case for a lot of women. Either they don't make it all the way into like fully anorexia. They kind of stay in that, like, I'm really thinking about my food a lot more than is healthy. Or if they come out of the anorexia, that it's hard to go all the way out and not be thinking about your food at some, mm. in some way. Um, okay. So I'm going to bring us back to the timeline. So that supermodel glamazon look of the late 80s was then co-opted by heroin chic in the early 90s with Kate Moss. This was not a fitness ideal so much as it was a wasting away ideal. Less long and lean, more starving drug addict. Thankfully, it was it was kind of brief, that, that period, but it kind of coincided with grunge. It coincided with me being in college, and, and it was when I was modeling as well. And I'm six foot tall. Kate Moss is five seven, I think. Uh, I, my bones are physically, like, there's no way I was going to look like her, but that's what I was supposed to try to look like, right? Mm. We were also seeing a lot more nudity uh, in non-pornographic media that, that was just kind of coming up and, you know, people were definitely having pearl-clutching moments about it, but in the same way that the word bitch used to be like, oh my god, you would never say that, and now people are like, bitch, please. So th this was sort of starting to be a normalization of things like the Calvin Klein ads with Kate Moss's bare, perfect round bum. I stared at her butt for so long, wishing my butt looked like that. You go even go look at the picture. She has this, it's like, I mean, I, there's probably some airbrushing or whatever going on, but it's like, it's like the perfect butt. And I was like, well, that's not what mine looks like. Um, I don't know if you remember, Madonna put out that sex book, which was just a bunch of pictures of her naked in various formations, another incredible body. 
I was uh, raised uh, very, uh, <laughs> so I, there's probably a lot of things that I didn't see, but I, but I, but, but my brother, we did have MTV and I was mm. young when MTV came out and my brothers would turn it on when my parents would leave. And I saw, I saw some things there. I saw some things on MTV, but like, yeah, I was a little bit sheltered. Mm. Fair, fair. Um, this was, there was that iconic picture of Demi Moore pregnant, uh, on the cover of Vanity Fair where she's naked you she's got her arm across her breast and she's got her that. hand or some cloth on her the, the front of her thighs but like this big naked belt and it gorgeous right um but this is also the time where as i said earlier we're starting to pick apart our bodies um maybe maybe because we're now seeing more naked bodies sort of as commonplace and around and now we're starting to examine our bodies in painful detail and giving these so-called problem areas cruel names mm. things like cankles muffin tops bat wings or bingo wings i think bingo wings because it's like grandma's playing bingo and mm. their arm skin is uh, moving. yeah um my very least favorite fupa what's that front upper pubic area oh uh saddlebags mm -hmm. which is like your you know your side hips or anything laurel are there are there other mean ones that that you've heard that you're like ugh. I think you got them covered the, in terms of the ones that I know, maybe double chin. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I can't think of any more. Yeah. Well, this bullshit persists to this day because in 2009, Gold's Gym declared that July was Cankle Awareness Month. And to that I say, go fuck yourselves, Gold Gym. Just go into the comments section of any influencer who is you know, fat or any influencer who's full body or any influencer who's not stick thin doing mm -hmm. some form of exercise. Right. And it is a cesspool. But a lot of them are so smart because they turn that hateful comment into a post and right. it gets a lot of play because there are a ton of people who think this shit is awful. And there's only a I think f there's probably fewer people who are, um, you know, sadistic, cruel, um, you know, mean people who yeah. are trying to hurt other others for fun for sport. Um, but yeah, this is this is alive and well. Like this this body hatred, uh, fat phobia is rampant on social media. But if you happen to be protected by your algorithm, you might not see it as much. Right? I follow a lot of um, influencers who are you know fat, full bodied doing their thing and they raise a lot of awareness about this hate and it's like wow look look at what these people who are just living their life have to deal with on the fucking internet every right. fucking day like how exhausting you know sarah i know you've been harassed for speaking up about things that have happened to you just by walking around and being a woman and you know it, it's it's exhausting it's it's really truly exhausting and yeah. again it's a feature not a bug, okay? Yep. Because we live in a deeply hierarchical society where there are people in power who would like to remain there. Thank you very much. I found an article online from 2016 from Harper's Bazaar that was about like, because I think I Googled, what are women's problem areas? And many, many websites came up. And in this article from Harper's Bazaar, they talk about the quote unquote banana roll which is the term for the pocket of fat in the fold just beneath your bottom, according to someone named Dr. Wolf. And my brain just fucking exploded. Like, 
What is the pocket of fat in the fold just below my bum? Isn't that just my fucking butt? Now my butt has its own butt and I'm supposed to do something about it because it's a problem? It just, it's, it's just, it's nuts. It's nuts. And it's, it's become so ingrained in so many of us. And this is that internalized thing that you were talking about. It's not exactly internalized misogynistic thinking, but it has been internalized uh, in women because we are daily over and over and over again pounded with this idea that there our bodies are a problem and we need to cut and divide ourselves up into the okay parts and the not okay parts and we need to diet and exercise and have surgery because we got to whittle away anything that we have deemed society has deemed wrong or ugly or problematic we are being driven to micromanage every aspect of our appearance until we just loathe every single part of ourselves. Yeah, I mean it, it is a, it is a form of hate. It's a it's a it's a form of hate expression. For for me at least I, I refer to misogyny as when like someone has weaponized their hatred, you know, in a in a way that is going to actually cause harm to the person, right? So in a kind of a public way or a personal way, right? And um, I think that like our insecurities that we might feel inside of ourselves around our problem areas aren't necessarily self-hatred because I'm not going to tell people how they feel about themselves. Like, I don't think of it as self-hatred. I don't think I, I really hate myself. I don't call it that. But I definitely have anxiety, right? Mm. Like, there's there's anxiety around it. And I think anxiety is different than hatred. And I think we're dealing with different levels of anxiety internally. And we're also expressing that anxiety, anxiety outwardly, like when we become hyper-focused on what we look like or when our teaching kind of turns into more of a focus on aesthetics, right? And mm -hmm. we kind of play up all this long and lean stuff. Like, I don't think that's necessarily misogynistic. It comes from a misogynistic culture, though. It yeah. comes from a culture that has overtly and covertly expressed hatred for women in many different ways, big and small, for the purpose of maintaining the hierarchical order, right? Yeah. And I, I would say, you know, I'm glad that for you and probably for other people, it is more of an anxiety than anything else. But I think there are plenty of people who have had, you know, more than one thought, like, like something like, I hate my thighs. For sure. I hate my butt. I mm -hmm. hate my cankles, right? I mean, it's People say it. I hate my body. I hate the yeah. way I look, yeah. you know, and, and, and it, yeah, that's, that's for sure the case. I'm sure for many people. We do have to dip a toe into the world of diet drugs. <laughs> okay. Because it's part of this story, right? So after World War II, uh, amphetamines, oh, yeah. I just laugh because it's so bananas. But uh, amphetamines were used as weight loss aids uh, until it was banned in 1979 because they're too addictive. Yeah, no shit. Have you ever heard of speed? Have you ever heard of methamphetamine, also known as crystal meth? I, I, I had some ephedrine in college. I would, I would take ephedrine to lose weight. Is that a form mm -hmm. of speed? I think it that might be. That is ephedrine. I'm not a pharmacist. <laughs> no, I'm not either. Ephedrine. Definitely, it definitely has like a, a speeding up type. It has a speedy quality to it. But I remember yeah. people used to, people used to break open pills of, isn't it used for, supposed to be used like a nasal decongestant? Uh, I have no idea. I know that it was, so, it was, it was given to me. I, I purchased it as a weight loss aid. Yeah. It was like, you will lose weight on ephedrine. I think they've since banned Probably. Because it, it's very, it's actually quite dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and also uh, Ritalin, which is a, 
drug that people use for ADHD is also an amphetamine. Um, so amphetamines are out there everywhere, but they're no longer, they're not supposed to be used as a weight loss aid. But so those were banned. And then there were some other ones that sort of came along in the 80s. Um, but the one that I remember the most from the mid-1990s was Fenfen. Do you remember Fenfen? Mm-mm. So Fenfen, uh, it's spelled F-E-N with a dash P-H-E-N. It was a combination of two anorectics, which are just, the word anorectic just means appetite suppressant. Uh, fenfluorine and phenentramine. Nope. Fentramine. <laughs> uh, before, that diet pill combination was also pill- pulled from the market because there were concerns over serious heart valve problems that were happening to people. And when I was looking into the history of diet drugs, there are all kinds of diet drugs that did not make it past the FDA approval system because they caused things like psychiatric problems and strokes and heart attack and sudden death. Uh, all right. in the name of losing weight because it's a huge industry right if you came up with like the next big diet drug you are a gazillionaire mm. and at the moment we're seeing ozempic and the other drugs in that family uh, which is supposed to be for people with type 2 diabetes to help control their blood sugar but literally people are just using it for weight loss i have a patient who's been using it for weight loss was prescribed it for weight loss by their doctor and they have lost something like 30 pounds in under three months. Mm-hmm. Like, like, you know, what we would consider a, like a crash diet kind of an effect. Mm. And I think the deal is they have to stay on this drug uh, because the second they go off it, their weight's going to come back. They're, they're not going to have their appetite suppressed anymore. Uh, yeah. we, have no, we don't have any long-term information on using these types of drugs, Ozempic and the other ones in this class. Yeah. I mean, I just want to say too, like, I don't, I don't, I definitely feel like the jury's out on, on Ozempic as a drug that can be used for more than just type two diabetes treatment. Uh, I've seen from reputable sources that it has been pretty successful in high quality, large data set studies uh, at, at reducing risks of cardiovascular disease. So you know, it's it's like anything. It's it's very complex, and uh, it has it hasn't been tested uh, for very long. Um, and and relatively speaking, either has the COVID vaccine, which has been one of the biggest successes of the 21st century, in my sure. opinion. Um, so I, I think that the the verdict is still out. But yes, for sure, people will always find a way to take things way too freaking far. (laughs) Well, and the kind of thing in Los Angeles in particular, it's been the sort of thing where um, women, but uh, you know, men as well have been using it for weight loss. So a lot of actors are using it for weight loss to the point where my friend who actually has type two diabetes could not get it at their pharmacy. They had to drive to Burbank because they were out of it. Yeah, I know. There was just this craze uh, where there was suddenly this extremely high demand for it for various, uh, and there's still various reasons. Yeah. 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 I mean, it, it's is. actually, it's, it's a, it's a pretty, um, it's, it's a breakthrough drug. I mean, it's, I think it's considered a breakthrough drug and there's, there's a lot of uh, positive potential there. I think at least from what I've heard from MDs, cardiovascular uh, MDs, but uh, yeah, again, it just depends on um, how it's used, which depends on the doctor, right? Who determines how it will be used, honestly, because that's who decides this is really the doctor and the patient. And it's an individual case by case basis. Laurel, since we're sort of, uh, we took a sidestep into the diet drugs in our timeline, we are still in the nineties. And this is where we start to see this BMI 
mm. uh, really coming through. Can you start to talk a little bit about BMI, how it's a inherently racist tool, and talk about uh, just a little bit because I know this is going to be coming up a ton in your episode. Kind of like a teaser for for our next episode, which is going to be about more than BMI, but BMI is definitely something that we uh, do do talk about because we're going to be we're going to be talking about the science of being long slash lean, what that actually means from a physiological standpoint in terms of body composition. Um, so yeah, anyway, BMI stands for body mass index, and it is uh, really just a formula that some person named he he's from he's from uh, Belgium. And it was in the early 1800s, Ketelet or Ketelet, I'm probably mispronouncing it. He was not interested in weight categories. He wasn't interested in classifying people according to weight categories. He really just wanted to understand average proportions of people. So he created this, this formula, which is basically it's kilograms in your body weight in kilograms divided by your height in meters squared. And that gives you a number. And so then what happened is sometime, I believe, in the 50s, a, a gentleman named Ansel Keys, who was an uh, American physiologist and nutritionist, he took this formula and he decided, you know what, the way that we're classifying weights, um, which really comes from <laughs> kind of, it's, it's, it's actually a very interesting history. The way that humans were classified in terms of their body size was really came from insurance companies who were trying to reduce risk. So they were measuring their policyholders' heights and weights and then deciding like, okay, who are we going to deny policies to so that we don't have to pay out as much in premiums? But guess who the policyholders were in the early 1900s? Guess who they were? I'm going to guess they were white men. You're right. They were <laughs> white men, you know, and, and so like we're going to get some skewed data there. But anyway, Ansel Keys is like, listen, I got a much easier way to do this. So he stole Ketelet's formula. I don't know if you gave credit. He might have given credit. And he's like, this is now what we're going to call the body mass index. This is um, sometime in the 50s anyway. So then we have the obesity epidemic sometime around 1995, where the World Health Organization published a report on obesity and they used BMI to do it. So they suggested that there are, you know, this is a rough categorization, but there's like basically four weight categories. There's underweight, normal weight, um, overweight, and obese. And then there's grades of obesity. But basically they're using this, this number to put people into categories. Well, there's a big problem with this number, okay? One problem is that it does not account for lean mass or it doesn't doesn't differentiate between uh, lean mass and fat mass or fat mass and fat free mass. Okay, so then what you have is you have this incorrect categorization a lot of the times for people who are taller, okay, because people who are taller have longer bones, right? Um, fat is fat, right? And everything that's not fat is lean mass. Okay, so think like muscle, bone, blood, water, your body's mostly water, right? Um, connective tissues, neural tissue, like all of that is is, is lean mass. And then we have fat mass. They're trying to decide if somebody is overweight, which means that their body composition is such that they have like, quote unquote, too much fat, right? The index only tells you what the ratio is between someone's weight and height. It doesn't tell you what proportion of that is lean and non-lean mass. And so then what you, you also have is like, for example, African-Americans tend to have higher amounts of muscle and bone than white people, for example. So they're often miscategorized for that reason as well, because this is very 
simple, overly simple heuristic that's that's being used to put people into categories. There's problems like this. And basically what it comes down to is that BMI oversimplifies health risks, okay? And because it's too simple of a tool for the job, but it's it's relied on very heavily by the medical profession still to this day. What it does is that it risks um, two things. One is it risks racial disparities in health in healthcare. Um, whole groups of people end up misclassified. Okay, and two, it causes stigmatization, where people with higher BMI uh, often, and this is documented, face bias from healthcare professionals. And this impacts their health care, obviously. It also impacts whether or not they're going to go and seek out health care, right? Um, I was listening to a podcast, someone interviewing Sabrina Strings. I'm going to talk a lot about her book, uh, Fearing the Black Body, The Racial Origins of Fat Phobia, in part two of this series. And she recounted an incident where she went to the doctor. And she's actually, by this index standards, normal weight, she was experiencing some health concerns. And the doctor was like, you need to lose weight. That was the diagnosis, so to speak. It was like, you just need to lose weight. And even by the standards of body mass index, which is a dumb, overly simplistic tool that doesn't actually measure what it's supposed to measure, which is it's supposed to measure body composition, but it doesn't. She was basically told to lose weight. She's given no answers as to what is happening in her body. She is by this BMI standard, normal weight. So where did that come from? Why, she's black, right? Why did the doctor look at her and go, you know what your problem is, is you just need to lose weight, right? So this is really what she unpacked. She's a sociology scholar and has is, is contributed a lot to this discussion around BMI as well as racial origins of fat phobia. Um, this is what she unpacks to a large extent in her book that um, that you, I know you read as well. And so just to have that on your radar, because th this is where we, we have this colliding of worlds, which is um, the worlds of uh, aesthetics and basically uh, aesthetic ideals held up as a tool for control and health, Yeah, right? Where, where these two worlds collide and we go, you know what is healthy is not having fat on your body. When in fact, we're confused a lot of the times, not always. And, um, and when I say we, I mean the general population. I'm, I'm not necessarily talking about doctors being confused, although there is well-documented um, fat phobia in medicine, right? So yeah, absolutely. it's a problem, absolutely. But, I'm, but, I'm, but I'm mostly speaking about the way society treats uh, fat and, and how this all ties into our topic today, which is how movement teachers talk about students' bodies and how they place value on the certain types of appearances with language like long and lean, right? That's why we're doing this episode, these episodes. I'm excited to um, hear more about all of this for your part two of this series. I'm, I'm excited to, to get into that recording. We start to see, I'm going back to our timeline, so now we're entering sort of the early 2000s. We start to see a little bit of pushback against this kind of idealized female figure, but not a lot, not much. I remember, uh, and I had to look up when it happened, it was in 2003, Kate Winslet called out GQ magazine because they put her on the cover and they photoshopped her legs. And 
she like immediately posted a picture of herself and her actual legs and was like, I don't look like that. And I don't want to look like that. And I think that was, that was the first time I remember a uh, celebrity calling out the Photoshop as opposed to being like, oh, thank God they made my legs look better or something like that. Right. And then, you know, get ready because here come the Kardashians. And the beginning of uh, what I, I don't know if this has a name, but it's sort of plastic surgery as an aesthetic, right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, plastic surgery has been around for a while, but things like the Brazilian butt lift and all of these things were, were, you know, literally using knives to carve our bodies. And also uh, something that I referred to earlier in the episode, which is this fucking thing called a waist trainer. Do do you know about the waist trainer or is this some L.A. bullshit? Uh, It's some L.A. bullshit. Yeah. I'm I'm imagining, is it like Spanx? Well, it's like, it's a a corset is exactly what it is. And you put it on and you squeeze it in. And then you like go for your hike or something. And it's, it, it, you know, the name implies what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to train your waist. And I'm like, all that's training is that when you take it off, your your guts are going to be like, oh, thank God. <laughs> you know, and just like, be more comfortable. There's nothing about that that is training a shape in your body. But this sort of, um, oh, God. Anyway, I, I got to this point when I was it, making it's, my it's, notes. It's the human body as modeling clay. Like right. when can we let it go? The body is not moldable that no, way. Not like that. <laughs> but no. you see it constantly, this model Everywhere. of the body. Everywhere. And and when I was when I was making my notes for this episode and I got to like this sort of modern day part of the timeline, I, I don't know if you saw it and started laughing, but I I started every single note started with fucking. So it was like fucking waist trainers. I did, like, I did, I did. <laughs> And then it was like, fucking goop. And I'm going to say this. I could spend so many hours ranting about goop, but I won't. But there is that much rant in me. And I'm going to say this. I'm just going to say this. I'm going to say this extra loud for anyone listening who may have fallen under the influence of Gwyneth Paltrow and her goop. IVs are for people who cannot eat or drink using their mouths. If you can use your mouth for eating and drinking, you do not need an IV. Everybody else who's using it is giving themselves expensive pee, a severe eating disorder, or both. Rant over. I just, I start to get like the red mist across my vision when I think about goop too much. Uh, So let's pivot. (laughs) Let's pivot to fitness and health influencers. And I would include yoga and Pilates influencers in this category as well. Now, part three of this series is going to be a deep dive into the Pilates and yoga influence on this long and lean uh, phrase. But for today, I want to focus on uh, the particular kind of trait that we see many of these, you know, quote unquote, well-being influencers uh, in the way that they post on social media. Uh, And so the post looks something like this you'll see a a text or a caption about like self-love or self-acceptance and you're exactly where you're supposed to be or some other sort of, you know, pap for the masses. And it's over an image of a young, white, thin, those are all, those categories all have to be present. Mm -hmm. Young, white, thin woman, possibly, you know, performing some sort of like asana on the beach or, you know, holding a flower and smiling. So the message is you're exactly where you're supposed to be unless it doesn't look like young and white and thin and flexible, in which case you should feel bad. And these kinds of posts, they are not hard to find. They are everywhere. 
And they're a particularly insidious form of marketing because typically the influencer is being paid to sell a product or is trying to get you to take their class or buy their online course, right? If you ever see me and Laurel in a real pose on the beach with a sunset happening underneath our perfect poses and the caption, all beauty is on the inside, you have my permission to troll us both. Can we do a parody of that the next time we go to Yalapa? Yes, please. <laughs> yes, please. Thought terminating cliches. It's, yes. it's usually a, a, a video with a thought terminating cliche uh, over a white skinny lady doing That's yoga. Right. Yeah. Um, and nowadays, I mean, we're now dealing with AI in social media and images, which is sort of like, it's kind of a bigger slash possibly scarier version of Photoshop because... You know, the short version is you should never believe any image you're seeing because at best it's, you know, airbrushed and photoshopped and at worst it doesn't even exist in real life and has been created by AI. So it's a it's an ideal that that doesn't doesn't even exist. And uh, this is a quote from Tina Fey's book, Bossy Pants. She says, now every girl is expected to have Caucasian blue eyes, full Spanish lips, a classic button nose, hairless Asian skin with a California tan a Jamaican dance hall ass, long Swedish legs, small Japanese feet, the abs of a lesbian gym owner, hips of a nine-year-old boy, the arms of Michelle Obama, and doll tits. <laughs> it's true. Oh my God. Ugh. Um, you know, and Laurel, this sort of made me think, and, and thank you for being willing to talk about this, because I think, you know, as mom to a daughter who is inevitably going to be exposed to all of this kind of stuff. Do you and Nathan discuss how you're going to address it? Is that something you're thinking about yet? Yeah. And Nathan is very, very diligent as her father about almost never. Like, I mean, in, he's, he's opposed to it, commenting on how pretty she looks how beautiful she is, right? It's always about like, you're tough, you're strong, you're smart, you work hard. It's a lot about working hard, right? And I'm a little bit less good about it because um, I just kind of just, I'm a, she's like the most beautiful person in the world, yeah. to me, right? So sometimes I'm just like, you are just so beautiful, Eliana, right? It just kind of like, oh, it just comes out of me. But I, I think that it comes down to really, at her age, she's five, very carefully deciding on what you're going to highlight and reflect mm -hmm. back to her about herself. And I would say we both do a really good job, but Nathan does an exceptional job at really talking about the work ethic, the grit, the toughness, the stick-to-itiveness. Um, and then playing up, you know, the things that we really admire about her, which is that she's creative and smart and she's um, a fun, fun person to be around. You know what I mean? Like all that positive feedback and then, you know, uh, some, some critical feedback as well. Like, you know, you need to say you're sorry and um, let's clean up your mess. And <laughs> um, But I think that right now our approach is really to choose, choose what we, what we give energy to. Yeah. Yeah, and I was thinking about this and and even you know, there's a difference between let's say your daughter at some point came to you and was like, "My I think my this part of my body is is ugly or something." Mm. You know, there's a difference between responding to that with something like, "But you're beautiful just as you are." Uh, yeah. As opposed to 
taking a step back and thinking, why are we emphasizing appearance for mm. women this much, right? Why is that basically almost a hundred percent of the emphasis on what matters yeah. as a woman, right? So, and that that's also to me similar to, you know, and you and I have talked about how within the weightlifting world, a lot of women are afraid to start to lift heavy because they're afraid they're going to get bulky. And, you know, bulky, again, it's the opposite, obviously, of this idealized long and lean. So we've talked about how, how much work it actually is for a lot of people to become, you know, quote unquote, bulky, right? It, it's not just lifting some weights a few times a week, but the step beyond that, again, similarly to, you know, not just saying, well, you're beautiful as you are. We need to, to stop demonizing bulky. We have to right. start make, stop making bulky a dirty word because it's, it's, it's only that is, that is that internalized uh, image that we have of ourselves as I need to be not bulky. And the full version of that sentence is I need to be not bulky because men don't like it. Right. Mm -hmm. So we need to stop thinking about bulky as a bad thing. Whether yeah. or not each individual person's bodies will be able to do it or not. Yeah. I like the analogy of, you know, being afraid to get bulky from lifting weights a couple times a week is sort of like being afraid of driving your car because you don't want to be a NASCAR driver. You know, it's it's like so far away from like what's probably going to happen because you have to work really, really, really hard to bulk up, especially as a woman. And then at the same time, it's also like, well, wouldn't you like to be an NASCAR driver? Like, wouldn't you like to be right. so good at driving a car that you would, you are a race car driver? Like, also, exactly. wouldn't you like to be strong? Because um, there's a very uh, strong relationship between muscle mass and longevity and muscle mass and health and muscle mass and the prevention of chronic degenerative disease. Uh, I don't know. Like, it just, yeah. it doesn't make sense. But you know what? Like... That is also a feature and not a bug. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so, you know, I was sort of at the at close to the end of this episode and, and I got to this point when I was writing it and I was like, oh, I don't want to just be like, okay, bye now. Everything sucks. You know, like it made me, you know, sad and it kind of put me in a crappy mood and that's not how I want to leave you guys. So I started thinking about some badass women that broke the mold uh, in, and, and not for, for, for a very variety of reasons, um, that had nothing to do with, that, that had to do with physical fitness, not physical appearance. And there were a couple that for me immediately came to mind. One was, and I didn't realize, I thought this was later than this in 1967, uh, Catherine Switzer was the first woman to ever run the Boston marathon. And there's this famous picture of, of like the men running the race, literally trying to drag her off the race course. And in my mind, I'm, sh I'm just like, yeah, she's faster than you, ding dong. She's fucking trained for a marathon. You think you're going to be able to like run fast enough and catch up to her? Um, <laughs> but that was a real game changer because women were not permitted uh, prior to that. Like she entered the race. She entered a men's race as a woman. There was no woman's race. And then the other one. Uh, and they just did make a, a, I think it's a movie or a series um, about this. Diane Nyat, in 2013, at age 64, managed to finally compete a swim from Cuba to Key West without a shark cage. It was her fifth attempt. The part that sticks out for me is without a shark cage, because I <laughs> just like, 
That'd be the part where I'd be like, oh, this, sh this is shark-infested waters? No, I'm, I'm okay. I think I'll stick with swimming pools that don't have sharks in them. But, you know, I mean, age 64, so not in the, you know, the peak uh, of our lifetime's health, but just like train the shit out of it, was determined and did it. And I just think that's kind of amazing. And I haven't watched that show or movie yet, but I, I definitely want to. It's got Annette Benning and Jodie Foster. It's supposed to be really good. Do you have any examples like that? Are there any women that you kind of just love how their story breaks the mold? Yeah. And I actually want to link some in the show notes, if that's okay. Please. I love following Latoya Shante Snell. She is a self-described black, fat, ultra marathoner. Nice. Her her feed is fire. So her handle is I am L Shante. She is incredible. Um, we love our friend of the pod, Roz the Diva. Yes. And I also really love you also follow this person. The handle is at Fat Body Pilates. Yeah. She posts really useful Pilates content, really creative stuff. Those are three people that I follow on Instagram. I follow a bunch more as well. Um, so maybe I'll, I'll link them and a couple more in the show notes so that right. folks can, you know, get under the influence of these influencers, <laughs> these fitness uh, influencers. And, you know, another thing I'm going to say about Instagram is that if you're following influencers that are using language like tone, sculpt, long and lean, shred, burn, rip, and things like that, right? And you get a little twitchy about it. It's just unfollow. Like get that off your feed and shape your algorithm so that it uh, feeds you the messaging that helps you feel better about yourself and the world, honestly. Because following these three accounts that I just named makes me feel better about the world, right? Because it, it shows me that actually um, we, that, that things can be more inclusive than it seems like they are. And, um, and it's just, it's deeply inspirational that despite the negativity that these folks face online, that I know they face online, um, they just keep kicking ass, you know, they just fucking keep kicking ass. And like, they're super inspiring for that reason as well. Awesome. Okay. Well, in conclusion, everyone, I hope you enjoyed this episode and are really doubling down on getting that long and lean body. No, I'm just kidding. Um, you can check out our show notes for links to the references that we mentioned in this episode. And finally, it helps us out really so much. If you like our, our stuff, if you like this, if you're into this, please subscribe. And if you're already subscribed, been, I was like, how do you say subscribe as a verb? Subscribe didn't. If you have already subscribed, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Get on our wait list for the 2024 cohort of our bone density program, Lift for Longevity. Should we try these and see which one of these we like? Sure. Okay. Hold on. Let Are me see what, what we're saying. Oh. See you in two weeks, weeks from, from now. From now. That feels too wordy. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's try the next okay. one. Okay. See you in a fortnight. That's like just for the English listeners. Yeah, but that also reminds me of the video game my brother and oh, son yeah. played. Okay, let's try the last one. Okay. 
see you the week the after, after next. next. <laughs> that one was oddly uh, charming. I like that last yeah. one. Okay. All right. Well, listeners, we'll see you the week after next. <laughs>